What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. Before we get rolling, I just want to quickly shout out the three companies that are supporting this show. The first is CoinKite. You've probably heard of them. They are the makers of the Bitcoin, the gold standard Bitcoin hardware wallet, the cold card. Phenomenal device. If you're not taking custody of your Bitcoin, this is an excellent way to do so. And of course, if you're looking to round out a multi-signature scheme, it's compatible with several wallets to do just that. Lots of other fun products in the store if you're a Bitcoin enthusiast. I highly recommend you check them out. Go to coinkite.com to learn more. If you're buying Bitcoin in Canada, bullbitcoin.com is the place to do it. Go there, have a receive address ready, so generated from your cold card hardware wallet. Put it in in your buy order, and as soon as you buy Bitcoin, the exchange never holds your money. They send it directly to your own storage, your own address. And that means that they can never, you know, a fuck up or a rogue employee can never steal your Bitcoin it goes directly from your purchase order into your custody. If you want to maximize security and privacy, I think that's the way to do it. They are also the people behind BitcoinSupport.com. We all know people in our lives that are terrified of engaging with Bitcoin. Maybe they're interested, but they don't know how to get everything set up. That's what BitcoinSupport.com is for. They hold your hand, make sure you know how to buy it, secure it properly, and then you're off to the races. Check them out if you or someone in your life falls into that category. And finally, the Bitcoin 2022 conference, April 6th to the 9th in Miami. It's going to be a massive party celebrating this emerging culture and this emerging or this emergence of freedom in the world. And uh, there's going to be a lot of phenomenal speakers. Apparently, Nayib Bukele has another big announcement this year. And to top it all off, the Sound Money Fest is a big giant party for us all to get down with our homies and plebs. Steve Aoki and Logic are headlining. Dead Mouse is going to be performing. I'm sure it's going to be an awesome time. I can't wait. Uh, use the code RAPIDFIRE at checkout to get yourself 10% off. That's it. Enjoy. Let's do it. And we're being live streamed. Dr. Julie Ponesi, um, nice to connect with you. And thank you for coming on, coming on for a discussion today. I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely. It's one of the most important things we do in a democracy, especially when we're in crisis. So thank you. Yeah. For and especially when there's such... Um, an absence of honest, open, genuine dialogue whereby two people are attempting to further advance their own perception of the truth rather than simply imposing their own worldview or ideas upon each other. So uh, thank God for the ability for us to do this and what seems to be a proliferation of these quote unquote fringe conversations. But, you know, if you look at the numbers and you look at the influence, uh, the tide certainly seems to be turning in favor of such discourse rather than the um, absolute abomination of mainstream media today. So important. You know, I think um, this idea of canceling and casting people out, as soon as you realize that someone has a view that you find unsavory, it's it's become the moral norm, I think, to to epidemic levels. And we are, to put it mildly, not doing ourselves any favors and and doing a lot of harm, I think. Yeah, I mean, the absolutely. word canceling, I don't know if that, it used to just mean like you would cancel a bank transaction, right? But now it's come into this moral political sphere and it's sort of heralded as a, a civic virtue and expectation, you know? Yeah. And well, and there's something on that point, there's something deeply dark and sinister about that because, mm-hmm. you know, it seems uh, rather inconsequential. You're saying, well, I, I don't like that person's opinion or it's dangerous or it's countervailing to my own and I, I want it to be gone. But you're, yeah. you're canceling the person simultaneously. And, you know, there, you know, I've talked about this before with some people on the show that have made that point. And 
it's a matter of degree, not kind, canceling someone's ideas and removing them from the discourse and canceling their life itself. You know, there's a very similar thing going on there. And your willingness to engage in the former, I think, points to an openness to the latter. And that's where we get into some very dangerous territory. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, canceling someone as opposed to disagreeing with them or arguing with them is really the ultimate form of disrespect, right? Because in, in engaging in someone with con in conversation with someone with whom you disagree, um, you have to exert some moral, some mental effort on that, right? And, mm -hmm. and in, in engaging with them, you're acknowledging that there's some value in that discourse, that value in the conversation. And, and in and them. So to, yeah. And and in them as a as a person, that's right. And in their their right to speak as much um, as as you have a right. You know, there's that famous quotation from Voltaire that goes something like, "I uh, I, I don't agree with what you have to say, but I will fight to the death in order to protect your right to say it." Something mm -hmm. like that, right? Um, and this idea that the right to speak freely it's more important than the content of the speech. I think that's, that's Voltaire as well. Uh, but we've gotten to this point where we think the content of the speech and protecting certain kinds of content is more important than protecting the right or the vehicle by which we speak or the space in which we speak, right? And, and I think we, um, I was looking, I was really curious about this the other day and wonder where did the word cancel come from? And I think it's related to the Latin for like trellising. So it, it's, uh, you know, you would strike out in a document, the, mm -hmm. the word, the wording or the numbers that you, you don't want seen in the way that, um, you know, like a trellis kind of puts these cross hatching lines across something. And it really is like that, right? It's saying, I don't like your view. So I'm blocking you. I'm, I'm blocking you. I'm not accepting. I'm not acknowledging your, not only your ideas, but the, the humanity behind those ideas. I'm striking you out of the human race. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's really, um, I think it's it's not it's not mature. <laughs> I think it would be fair to say. I mean, this is what little children do, right? And we try mm -hmm. to we try to unlearn that behavior from them. They get mad and they stomp out of the room and they push the child down or they cover their mouth. I mean, these are all sort of um, inchoate, immature forms of behavior. Um, and even John Stuart Mill, who was you know the father of utilitarianism, that is invoked pretty regularly now in order to support this collectivist for the sake of the common good kind of mentality. Um, he thought that silencing another person's opinion was, I think he called it evil actually, because he said it's robbing the human race, right? It's mm -hmm. um, those who, uh, you know, dissent from the opinion and those who hold the opinion. If the opinion is right, then they're deprived of the opportunity to exchange their own error, error for truth. And, and if it's wrong, then they lose almost, uh, you know, what is as, as great a thing, which is a clearer perception and, and a greater commitment to their idea in the first place. So um, it's not really historically accurate uh, or allegiant to this hero of utilitarianism to say that we can, that we must silence unacceptable opinions for some kind of preservation of safety or goodness or, or whatever it is our ultimate goal is, you know? Yeah, I think that's very well said. And I, I'm not sure who to attribute this quote to, but I 
reflect on it often. And it's that um, evil is the knowledge that presumes itself complete. And it's, that's kind of the other side of the coin that you were just des describing, whereas like the ultimate good is the continual search for truth. And as a result, the openness to the, ver the variety of ideas you must have in order to pursue that genuinely or sincerely. And the opposite of that is presuming you, you know everything. And then it's, you know, you, you had a great uh, speech at the Democracy Fund, I believe it's called a few months ago. And um, you, ref you reference Hannah Arendt and, and her um, covering of, I believe, the Nuremberg trials. And Adolf Eichmann in particular. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is where the term the banality of evil uh, emerged because she was so surprised at, at his normalcy, you know, as you say, like he just seemed like an ordinary person and uh, he was just following orders. And that's, you know, there's a slight difference there, but I think it comes from presuming to know everything and presume, and you almost have to feel that way to cohere or to conform to an authority and say, well, that, that authority's knowledge is complete, even if there's power attached to it, that's kind of biasing that knowledge. And so this is how, you know, the banality of evil really is the, the one that flies under the radar, but you have to be, you have to be so uh, astute and vigilant in identifying because it's the more insidious one. And obviously today you could look around the world and in particular in Canada and you could, you know, in the, the leader in Justin Trudeau, I mean, that is on the most full and disgusting display almost at all times. And, um, and it's people so, don't appreciate just how badly things can go if you don't rectify uh, those things. Yeah, it's so interesting. Uh, and, and then kind of segueing into this, um, you know, the analogs in, in contemporary um, politics now in Canada, especially, but on the topic of that uh, Arendt's banality of evil, you know, she, this idea of just following orders, uh, I think the point you make is a really interesting one, which is that, you know, why would you just follow orders? Why would you feel that you are sort of ep epistemically and then morally justified in doing so? Well, I think you're right that one reason is that you feel that the person you are deferring to has a complete system of knowledge, that their knowledge is perfect, that they can't possibly err. And there's a kind of, I think, like uh, displaced arrogance in that, right? You're sort of being arrogant in thinking that another human being or group of human beings could possess that kind of perfect knowledge that is, you know, um, unrevisable and can't be falsified and can't, you can't possibly be proven wrong. Um, but there's also a kind of well, I guess, I guess what I was going to say, there's a kind of, there's a kind of hubris in that about the human race and uh, to think that humans are omniscient, to think that we know all there is to know about either something or everything is, I think, not only unjustifiably sort of arrogant, but where would we get that idea from? I mean, are we pointing to some, um, race in the past? Are we, are we pointing to some government? Are we pointing to some society that seems to have been um, impervious and, 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 and perfect? And um, it's a very odd position to hold. I mean, I think I, I've said this before, but I think one reason why we do it now is because modern life has become so 
overwhelming and we're so taxed by the burdens that technology has given us. I mean, it's given us some really incredible things, but we're also inundated with information all day long. And we are, I think, burdened by our luxuries in some sense. We, you know, we can, most of us can buy just about anything that we, you know, we, we're just sort of um, over, overwhelmed and overtaxed, I think, by data and by stuff. And so when there's an opportunity to outsource your thinking to someone else and say, well, you figure that out. I, I won't do it. I'll just follow the order that you give me. There is a kind of relief in that, right? There's a kind of like, not only do I now get to displace responsibility, if it turns out badly, I can say, well, it wasn't really my choice. You know, me, I, Adolf Eichmann, I didn't really make the decision. It was, you know, I can defer to someone, some um, superior in the Nazi party. And now we can do the same thing. We can say, well, our decisions of our economic decisions or our decisions about COVID policy now don't turn out well. Well, I was just listening to the experts. I was just following the orders. So not only do I get to displace responsibility, which feels great as such a relief, morally speaking, but I don't have to do the work myself of figuring out what the answers should be, how I should act, because that takes a lot of work, right? It takes a lot of thinking and research and debating with oneself and engaging in deliberation. And, and, and once you've done all of that, you kind of have to be willing to redo it every single day because information is changing. I mean, it's exhausting the thought of it, right? So it's like a division of labor. We feel like, well, I'll just get someone else to make the decisions for me. It's easier. And then I don't have to deal with the consequences, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it requires a humility and humility requires courage because what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to be the one to confront the unknown. I'm not going to outsource that. And to continuously do that, as you say, first of all, requires a humility to suggest that I don't know everything. Therefore, there's a necessity to confront the unknown and then the courage to actually do it because you're not equipped with the same degree of certainty and comfort that you usually are when you're confronting the genuinely unknown. And so, what I see so often in these people that abdicate that responsibility or that approach, there's so much arrogance and hubris, as you said, and the, the, the insidious nature of this and, and the reason why, you know, I kind of, I want to get your take on how your philosophical uh, education and experience has informed, you know, a broader analysis of the culture today is that's what culture is ostensibly one of its prime benefits is outsourcing cognition to a certain degree, because it is the division of labor, be it physical or cognitive. And so, and there's a, there's a great benefit of that because it frees us up. It frees that cognitive potential up for other things. But what happens if that cultural mechanism deteriorates and no longer becomes reliable in performing that outsourcing function and, and by outsourcing it, you're actually, uh, you're getting the wrong signal. You're getting the wrong feedback. You're not getting reliable behavior on which to predicate your behavior or by which to determine your behavior. And then I mean, there's almost nothing more insidious than that because it's such a subliminal feedback mechanism, you know, and people have referred to this today as, you know, it's become popular in the last few months, this idea of a mass formation psychosis. And, you know, some people will agree with that. Some people will think it's maybe too strong a language or whatever, but I, I think it's undeniable that we are very much uh, results of our culture, you know, so you and I having lived and grown up in Canada versus someone who lived in the African Savannah, for example, we're going to have very different operating systems and preferences and languages and all of these things. So we can't separate our, ourselves from it. And so then the question becomes, well, what are the predicates of the culture such that it's most reliable for us to use in the ways that we want to use it? 
And I would suggest that today, and you, we, you know, perhaps we can get into this later, that we are dealing with a culture that has degraded in very significant and important ways. And that is part of the reason why we've wound up in a place where what's happening today is even possible. Like, why was it so easy for a uh, relatively mild risk for a relatively small portion of the population to induce a global hysteria that has caused a reaction equivalent to, and in some cases greater than World War II in terms of spending and, and, and government overreach and dictatorial powers and all of this stuff. How was that, how, how was the, the, the soil even fertile enough for that to happen? You know, so mm -hmm. there's a lot of really big questions wound up in the current insanity. Yeah. There's a lot there. So I, I'm, I'm trying to see if I can remember all. So remind me to talk about the nocebo effect because I think that's really, interesting and part of part of the answer possibly to your question um, to go back to some of the really interesting things you were commenting on initially um, one of the problems I think with outsourcing our thinking in this division of labor way and I'm going to borrow from Karl Marx for a minute I'm, I'm not a Marxist by any <gasps> means but I do I know just hold <laughs> Just hold on, because, well, I'll tell you something, you know, on the topic of canceling and the harms of canceling, I really do try not to throw the baby with the bathwater, right? So just because there are things in his, his, his moral political philosophy that I find pretty concerning, um, the, the one concept I think is quite interesting, which is this idea that when we don't see the product of our labor from start to finish, we become alienated from it, right? And he was talking primarily about um, how goods being produced in a factory setting and you work only on, you know, maybe your job in making a code is just to sew the button on, but you don't, you know, you don't put the fabric together. You don't see the rest, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but if we, if we think about how that applies to what's going on now, and if we don't take responsibility for decision-making about things that affect our lives from start to finish. If we're not doing the research, if we're not engaging in the deliberative process, if we're not ultimately making the decisions, but we say to the so-called experts, you do that for me, and then I will follow the instructions that you give me. Um, it's possible if Marx is right, and if thinking is a similar, you know, if, if the lesson from uh, the production of goods uh, story applies to thinking, right? So thinking is a kind of good or decisions are a kind of product as well. Um, then, you know, we're, we're, dis we're disengaged from this process of making decisions about our lives and we're going to feel alienated from it. I think as an unsurprising consequence, we're gonna feel like, well, decisions that are being made by governing bodies, by the, by the CDC, by Health Canada, by, um, by the FDA about, um, you know, whether or not certain uh, pharmaceuticals and nutraceuticals are appropriate for the treatment of COVID about mask wearing or not mask wearing or vaccine passports or whatever. If those decisions are from beginning to end made by someone else who we don't know really in any intimate way, um, in what sense are we going to feel connected to that decision? Now, I don't think we do feel connected to those decisions, but as you rightly say, we are 
incredibly allegiant to the outcome of that decision-making process. We're totally willing to take on the advice and the orders from people we don't know and say, sure, I'll do that. And I think to be quite honest with you, there is a section of the population that will um, wear masks, social distance, and take an unlimited number of boosters forever ad nauseum. I think human nature is just built such that there's a certain percentage who will do that because their overarching um, principle for living their life is, is rule following. And so whatever leader rises to the top, whatever rules he or she makes will be followed by a certain percentage of the population. I think that's just true, right? Um, but then you were asking about, well, how did we get to this point where we are so inclined to be gripped arguably irrationally by the fear of a virus that to the vast majority of us under age 70 who are healthy and even over age 70 who are healthy. And then um, the risk decreases significantly, almost exponentially as you get into the younger age groups, right? And for children, I mean, it's statistically insignificant, the risk of getting very sick from COVID. But how did that fear grip us? Um, and there's some really interesting literature in moral psychology and in psychology, behavioral psychology on mass hysteria and, and the nocebo effect. And this idea that you can, I mean, if the placebo effect is the idea that we will believe something good can happen just by being, uh, just, just from the suggestion of that belief, then the nocebo effect is the opposite of that. We can be led to have the belief that something bad will happen, right? There was this really famous example of Emirates flight, and I forget the number, right, where there were some of the passengers started showing flu-like symptoms, and then um, by the time, and then th th this sort of concern that, oh my goodness, I am feeling a little bit sick, and oh, I'm, yeah, I feel like my throat's a little scratchy, and I am a bit feverish, and so they were worried that there was this kind of flu outbreak on the plane, the plane lands in New York City, I think it was, and then they tested everybody, and a very small percentage of the people were actually we're actually sick, but it's, it just suggests to us the power of suggestion and what can happen when fear grips us, you know, and, um, and the psychology of fear, I think is really interesting. I mean, we might think, well, no one would ever want to be afraid. I mean, being afraid is a terrible state to be in because you're not confident. It increases your stress levels. Um, there's so much uncertainty about the future. You, you, you're, not, you're not in control of anything. But if we think about it, I mean, we do um, voluntarily put ourselves into states of fear. We pay other people to keep us afraid. We go to horror movies, right? We love mm. Halloween. We like to be scared. Um, and those are kind of, I guess, silly examples. And someone might say, well, of course, those, that's just entertainment, Maybe, but why do we find that to be entertaining and comforting? People say that, right? They say that yeah. I love horror movies. They're so, you know, um, they just make me feel good. Well, that's very odd, right? That we would be, uh, and I wonder if there's a sense in which we enjoy being in a state of fear mm -hmm. right now. And well, why, why would that be? Well, one thing that's kind of great about the horror film is that you're in a theater with a bunch of other people who are going through the same experience together. Mm. You get shocked together. You experience fear together. The, the, the terrifying situation resolves itself. It's almost like that ancient no notion of catharsis, right? And so now, if, if COVID goes away, the reported case numbers go down. We don't see daily reports about COVID anymore. Um, we don't have to think about that. 
We don't have masks to wear when we get up in the morning. We don't have any of that virtue signaling to do. We need new purpose in our lives. Mm. We need a substitute for that. Yeah. We may not have that. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. I think that's probably the case. I think a lot of people, and again, so much of this, it's, it's impossible to isolate such deep and meaningful aspects of our psyches and not have them connect to other things. But I think, uh, you know, that call to adventure, the hero's journey, be it in a religious context or perhaps otherwise, is so missing from people's lives that when an opportunity to signal virtue arises and to become a quasi hero, mm -hmm. a certain cohort of people will grab onto it immediately because there is a yearning to do that. But there's a uh, they, there's a desire to do it in the easiest possible way with the least possible commitment and the least possible sacrifice, you know, and I think to your point about yeah. the, the various virtues that are being signaled today, there's probably an element of that that's going on there, you know, and the, the, when I, I feel like an aspect of what you were just saying about fear, and it's, I guess it's always this double-sided nature, right? And so there's always a yin and yang here. So yes, you know, fear can be, you can be uh, kind of coaxed into giving into your fear too much because there's an element of it that feels good. But I would say it's probably the case that, you know, the, let's say the evolutionary or adaptive advantage of fear itself beyond the obvious, like if you, if you hear like a wolf growling in the darkness, you better run something like that. But I think there's an element of why we voluntarily um, generate fear in ourselves is because we realize that exposing ourselves to fear makes it more uh, makes ourselves more familiar with it, and perhaps there's a subconscious understanding that in the fear is also the novel. In the unknown is also the redemptive knowledge of how to update our current circumstance, be it individual or cultural. And so, you know, so there's a very useful element to that. But again, if you're not conscious of the dynamic that's at play, and if you're not engaging it consciously, you're going to be swept into the you can be swept away by it and you're going to be, you're going to be unconscious of how it's that process is happening to you or through you. And that's where all the danger lies. It's so interesting. I mean, the way you were talking about fear there and sort of exposing ourselves to a little bit of it at a time. I mean, this may be a terrible analogy. You tell me what you think, but it's almost a little like we are voluntarily, but maybe subconsciously, inoculating ourselves against the fearful because if we just take if we just expose ourselves to a, it's like you get up in the morning and say well I'll, I'll let myself feel a little bit of fear today but not about any you know I, I don't want to take it too far because that'll be overwhelming and soul crushing and I can't cope but I do need to expose myself to a little bit of it so that I can what I don't know so that contextualize it properly reading, engage it properly yeah Maybe that, or maybe, maybe we ultimately know that something really, truly horrific is coming. And so we need to prime ourselves to get into that state because the jump from a state of security to a state of absolute terror would just, would just be, um, would just destroy us psychologically. Yeah. I mean, it, I it seems rational I, to me. I mean, de death is coming for us all, right? That's the, for most people, that's the ultimate existential fear. So to the extent that you can you can expose yourself to more diluted aspects of fear. You know, I think it can be very beneficial in your life so that you're not, uh, 
you're not so controlled by fear, right? This is a very common psychological practice of, you know, kind of exposing people to their fears slowly and incrementally until they've overcome them or, or determined how to integrate them properly and not be overwhelmed by them. You know, so I, I, I definitely think there's an aspect of that. But again, like so many things, if you're not conscious of it, it can, it can, it can lead you astray. And I think that's what's, what's happening to so many people today. And, you know, to just to go back to one of the things you said before, and also for I'm recognizing now that when we started, we didn't really uh, talk about how you came into the fray and all this. And maybe for some viewers, that's, uh, you know, that's some important context, but it wouldn't matter that much. You know, we're talking about this uh, usefulness of outsourcing cognition to culture, right? So that we can free ourselves up to focus on other things and we can delegate um, things to other institutions or people. And there's a benefit to that. And we were saying how perhaps for a variety of reasons, maybe we can touch on them, culture has deteriorated. And that's meant that that outsourcing is no longer as useful and potentially dangerous. But my point is that wouldn't ultimately matter that much, at least from the individual perspective, if you weren't forced to uh, to uh, like align with the dictates of that outsourced cognition. So just as an example, like right. I could I could say I don't trust the institutions of media, politics, big business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as a result, I'm not going to outsource my cognition to them. I'm going to keep it here. And if I have to reside in a certain degree of ignorance, I'm OK with that because I can still get by and I'm not putting myself at risk of that. But if I'm not given the choice, if I'm forced to to correspond or to go along with the determinations and dictates and conclusions of those institutions and, and more besides, then we're in like the real scary territory. And effectively, that's why you're here, right? Because yeah. you tried to do that and you you effectively weren't allowed to. That's right. There are no. Um... There is no room. I mean, in Canada, I mean, as I'm sure you know, uh, there is much talk about inclusivity and diversity. I mean, I think it's interesting in and of itself whether or not those two ideas are paradoxical relative to one another. I'm not sure. We might have to talk about that. But nevertheless, not, these not words, that they care, but yeah, no, these <laughs> words are used a lot, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and both of those things suggest um, a kind of heterogeneity, right? So diversity. It implies that there's a possibility for contradiction because you have more than one view, right? More than a single, a single view. Um, and then inclusivity presumably is the idea that we are not going to ostracize even those with views that diverge from whatever the norm is, or maybe the idea that there isn't a norm, right? That, that there's like a value equivalency to all of these different, all of these different views. But um, I forget where I was going with that. Where did well, we ta start talking about? <laughs> well, I mean, first, first of all, <laughs> then I started seems, thinking about inclusivity. <laughs> I mean, that's, that seems totally reasonable interpretation of those two words. And I agree with the contradiction. What you were saying was we were getting to your own experience of being able to abstain from yes. oh. what the, the dominant narrative yeah. or, or paradigm is. Well, what I did is engage in an act of conscience, right? It was a kind of conscientious objection. And, and that, that term has usually been applied to um, those who are Draft. pacifists in, 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 in contexts of war, right? Uh -huh. So usually we call um, 
conscientious objectors, those who who refuse to go to war and, and fight on fight on behalf of their country or for whatever reason. But it's also become commonplace in the professions and in medicine, especially, and you know, physicians who don't want to participate in um, in, in abortion or euthanasia or various other practices that personally they find to be um, objectionable to their their conscience. Um, and so what I did, and really anyone who has chosen not to abide by the like the vaccine mandate, but not just that. I mean, any of the restrictive COVID policies is to engage in an act, an act of conscience. So I'm saying that, you know what? I'm looking at this directive, this order, this rule. I'm subjecting it to the part of me that does the work to figure out whether or not this decision I'm going to make is consistent with my idea of the good. I ran it through that procedure, decided that it is not. So I, I hold on to my idea of the good and I reject the decision. And that decision turns out to be inconsistent with the mandate or the order. And so I've objected to it on the grounds of conscience. But as it turns out, um, in Canada, we don't have room for that kind of conscience anymore. We don't, we, we haven't allowed ourselves to maintain a kind of space in which people can object on conscience grounds um, and still be a member of society and still keep their jobs and still, I mean, there's a question now I think about whether or not if you object to the government mandates, will you be able to keep your money? Will you be able to vote? Will you be able to keep your place of residence? Will you be able to keep your jobs? Will you be able to keep your children? I mean, these are these are live questions right now, and I don't know how it's going to turn out. Mm. Yeah, it, it's one of the things I've noticed, and I, I love how you put that in terms of how you <clears throat> how you place this question against your conscious your conscience and your idea of the good, you know, and, and philosophers or or religious scholars or or you know people like that might refer to this as your own you know the logos within you how do you take information and and decisions from the outside world and reflect them or, or put them up against what is most core about you and what you most hold to be true and good and then what does that elicit in terms of a response and an action from you and if you don't have the freedom to engage that for yourself and I think this is one of the, the issues we were referring to before is that so many people have abdicated even the engaging of, let's call it logos, you might have other terms for it, but abdicated, abdicated that very process and outsourced that. I mean, there's a lot of things you can outsource to make your cognition more efficient, but that you should not be outsourcing. That's something that you should be cultivating and refining so that you get better and better at engaging it over time. And we exist yeah. in, a, in a time and place where people seem to have abdicated that. And when you and when so many people have done that, then when when as a matter of policy or politics, you're restricted from engaging that mm -hmm. it's it's indicative of just how egregious that abdication has been and, and how detrimental um, how detrimental a process has been initiated in the very structure of what holds society together, in my opinion. Yeah. And when you lose that, when you lose logos or reason or the, not that you are rational in the sense that you're getting the answer right, but you're mm -hmm. rational in the sense that you're engaging in the, in the, in the work of thinking through, right. And weighing and deliberating. If we lose that, if we abdicate from the responsibility of having to do that, it's not just that we might fail to get the right answer or that we've done something morally bad. We just, we fail to be human. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. That's what we're, that's what's hanging in the balance here. I mean, you know, I think when people say, well, what's the big deal? Why don't you just get along? Why don't you just, you know, submit to whatever? Well, the big deal is to, to act against what you believe to be right is the ultimate sacrifice a human can make. It loses, it makes you lose what's most important about you. And, you know, we haven't seen, I think, discussions about integrity, for example, for a very long time. And um, there's some really interesting work in philosophy on uh, on integrity. And Harry Frankfurt, for example, um, defines it as a kind of wholeness. So if we think of integrity, not just as a moral notion, but we think about integrity of systems, right? Or the integrity of a car working well. Well, that's when all the parts are performing their function relative to all the other parts so that the car runs, right? Um, in the moral context, the idea is acting consistently with your deeply held beliefs and values. So if you have a core principle, um, a core moral principle, for example, that you that you should always tell the truth. And then if you start making decisions and engaging in actions that involve deception or outright lies, then regardless of what you think about truth-telling, you fail to have integrity because there's that inconsistency between what you fundamentally believe to be true and then what you do, right? You're, you're, a, you're a hypocrite in, in some sense. And, and that's, I mean, we use that word really disparagingly, but ultimately I think what it does is it, it breaks the individual apart. If we do things that are different from what our fundamental beliefs are, we, we've lost who, we don't have any idea who we are anymore. Yeah. Right. So if someone asks you, well, Julie Panessi, who are you? And if I tell them, if I give them a list of what my fundamental beliefs are, but then they say, well, I, I just watched, you know, some speeches you gave and the things you said, and then some of the actions you do, and that doesn't seem to match up at all with what your fundamental principles are, then like what I've lost there is wholeness in myself. I'm not really a person anymore because I'm, I'm broken apart. Right. And I think we have like a crisis of integrity right now because we have a whole bunch of broken people who in the effort to do what they believe is the morally right thing by just following rules, by just getting along. um, They're not just possibly making the wrong choice from an objective point of view, but they're losing like their whole moral agency is falling apart. They're losing their personhood. Right. Yeah, I think that's extremely well put. And I also think it's why a lot of people have um, perhaps somewhat dramatically characterized these times as, you know, biblical or, or being of a spiritual nature more so than even a yeah. <clears throat> political or policy one. Because as you say, I think so many people are not recognizing the necessity and importance of, of that very approach that you just articulated. And as a result, you have, you know, this is, of course, this is a bit inflammatory, but you have something more akin to zombies than sovereign integrated individuals walking around. Because as you say, if you, if you give up or you're not familiar with, or you relinquish or by whatever means do not cohere as much as you possibly can with the fundamental principles that animate your very perception and behavior, then what are you? Cause you're not your credentials. They can be taken away. They, they may not be recognized by different groups of people. You're not your name. That's you're just something that's written on a piece of paper when you're born. You're not your sports team. You're not your political affiliate. All those things are context dependent. What are you that's not context dependent that will orient you in the world, no matter where you are and what you're doing, that's who you are. And if you haven't determined what that is, if you, if you're not constantly trying to refine and discover what that is, and then go through the, somewhat arduous process of actually 
staying integrated with that and expressing it into the world, you're a, you're dust in the wind almost, you know, I know it's a bit harsh, but you're, you're, you're not really there. And maybe this is bad news for many. I don't know, but no one can give you that. No one else, you know, people can tell you what to do. They can tell you what to say and maybe even ultimately over time, what to believe, but nobody can give you who you are. But nobody can take it either, right? That's Viktor Frankl, the first and last human freedoms. It's deciding, you know, yeah. how to respond to any given situation, who you are in every given situ- any given situation. You know, it's so funny. I, uh, I mean, in talking with you now, and I sort of had this thought a lot over the last weeks and months, which is that, you know, why why do we want to do this to ourselves? I mean, it, it seems like a clinical psychologist is going to say we have like a you know, we have a a global population of self-destructive people, right? We're, I mean, regardless of, you know, what you think about the vaccination issue, I mean, some of these, um, like the lockdown policies and the masking and the perversion of what's going on in journalism. um, I was just reading an article this morning about how the, the effects that we're going to feel because of how we're treating our young people now will manifest themselves in a loss of trillions of dollars to the global economy for years to come. Now, if that's right, I mean, in some sense you wonder, well, how can that be quantified? But if that's right, or if anything like it is even remotely right, like what we're doing is very, it's very destructive. And that's not to mention the psychological costs. I mean, we have a children's mental health crisis that's been declared in the States and in the UK and in, uh, and in Canada. I mean, it's just, it's, it's astronomical, the economic and social costs of what we're doing. So if we're doing that and we have some degree of awareness that we're doing that, it's like we're living, it's it's a bit like we're living a Greek tragedy where you just kind of want to hide your eyes and say, I can't look because I know, I know these actions are faded. I know what's going to happen. It's going to turn out badly for our tragic hero. It always does, right? <laughs> um, Sophocles told us, but um, it's like we're living through a tragedy. And the thing about a tragedy in the technical definition is that there's always a character flaw that leads the hero or the protagonist to make choices that ultimately bring about their downfall. So the tragedy happens because of the hero's own choices, right? We use, I think we use the term tragedy very loosely now. I think most famously when Lady Diana died, um, the word tragedy was was thrown around a lot. Um, You could argue that that was a tragedy in the technical sense if some of her choices ultimately led to her downfall. But now we very loosely use tragedy for any sort of disaster, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a natural disaster, a hurricane that kills a lot of people is not a tragedy in the, in the, in the, in the technical sense. A tragedy is, is a self-fulfilling prophecy based in, in character flaws. So if that's true, if we're writing our own tragedy as a human species, what is our character flaw that's allowing us to do that? Is it a kind of blindness? back to what we were talking about before about, you know, a kind of, are we allowing ourselves to, I mean, are we just outsourcing information, decision-making capacity so much that we just don't have the ability to adjudicate between truth and falsehood anymore? So do we have a kind of blindness that's going to lead to our downfall? Um, Is it arrogance? We've talked about that. Mm -hmm. Is it fear? Is it, um, almost an overwhelmingly controlling 
desire for our lives to have purpose and meaning. And so we latch on to any um, threat that we perceive requires solving, right? And so we get on this virtue signaling bandwagon and attempt to solve it. it what is it? I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably all and. Uh, I think it, this is probably a multifaceted problem. And, you know, this is one of the topics I've been enjoying digging into on, on this podcast with some other, you know, philosophers and psychologists and such. I don't know if you know John Verveke, but he's a fellow uh, Canadian uh, philosopher who's been doing a lot of work for many years on, on the, what he terms the meaning crisis. And I think this is generally what we're talking about. I mean, what is it that has led us to this point where if there's any validity to the way we're characterizing people in society today, what has led us to that? And, you know, yeah. there's so many things wrapped up in that from modernity to the monetary system, to the size and scale of government, to the, the loss of religion and spirituality. And not to say that any of those are one-sidedly bad or good, but it, it would mm -hmm. seem that they all are playing a role in, in, in putting, you know, global society, broadly speaking, uh, in a position where they lack the proper orienting meaning to engage one another or engage their own lives, one another and construct a culture that is not self-destructive, let's say, you know, and, and just one kind of absurd perversion of all this, you know, cause you brought up the financial impact and I play in those worlds quite a bit is when, you know, just something as simple as to facilitate this response interest rates have been the cost of capital has been brought down artificially low and of course inflation is even the the uh, official print which is usually way under reporting is you know far in excess of the cost of capital and so what you're actually doing when that's the case and i don't want to get too you know financy here but you're actually incentivizing the destruction of capital when the cost of capital is 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 lower than the inflation rate like that. So as you say, like not only are we burdening future generations with so much debt, in the moment we're incentivizing the destruction of the accumulated capital that we've built up through, you know, our entire, you know, history of civilization as it were. Well, now there's always there's always that? an ebb and flow. How handy is that if you don't want people to own anything anyway? But I mean that's kind <laughs> of another <laughs> another story I guess, but you know, as you're talking, I'm just reminded of um, months ago I was talking to, to a young person and she said that basically no one under 40 thinks that anything good could ever happen again. And that ain't, uh, good. That ain't good. No, it's not good, but it's also kind of not surprising. You know, no, I think, um, I mean, as a university instructor, I went from in the nineties, late nineties, I guess, when I started teaching in some, some classrooms in a, in a student teacher capacity to, um, and when I was an undergrad, I felt like students were still pretty fiery and interested and competitive and love the lively exchange of ideas. And, um, over the last, I mean, even decade, really, maybe even more than that, apathy has been the dominant air in the room you know mm. it's um they're apathetic terribly worried unhappy looking uh people lonely they come into a classroom they sit and look on their phone they don't talk to each other it's no trouble getting hold of the class at the beginning because they're not there's nothing to get hold of you know they're not talking to each other but i think it, it makes me think about what we've you know, lost over the last 
period of time that makes us moral beings. You know, we've, we've lost reason. You and I have talked about that or the ability to reason that, which is like a, you know, it's a mental skill. It's an intellectual virtue that requires, you have to practice it. It's like a muscle. And if you don't practice, you lose it. Um, we've lost our capacity to remember things because we don't have to anymore. I mean, we're far outside of the oral tradition and from the ancient period prior to the printing press, but even now more so, we don't even have to write things down in books anymore because we have the, the memo recorder on our phone that can remember, we can look anything up with the touch of a button. And there are there's a trade-off to that. So it's great that we have the convenience and instantaneous data, I guess, at our fingertips or something maybe good about that. But the loss is the capacity for, for memory and self-recollection and, um, um, and and probably a connection to our past in certain ways you know I don't know if um, stories are told to the young anymore in the same way or if they will be by people who are under 40 now you know and we've lost um, a lot of humility and openness and empathy and tolerance and if we've lost all of these things and if all of these things are what make us moral beings then we kind of have a, a, a race at this moment in time of people who are not really moral beings anymore. We're some kind of, you know, zombies or automatons. And um, so it's not surprising, I think, that we, we're in this place of, of acting as demoralized people and feeling like we're demoralized. And then the question, you know, looking to the future is, well, well, how do you deal with that? How do you treat demoralized people? And I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, so we would need someone of that expertise to, I think, really fill in the blank. But my sense is that demoralized people need not future or further punishment or ostracization. They need care. You know, we have to be, uh, we, we, need, we need to be retaught how to engage with each other, how to be humble, how to reason, how to be open to new ideas. And we need to teach that all the way down to the youngest members of, of society. Yeah, I think you would have to admit that on some level, again, so much wrapped up in this, but you would have to, you know, we human beings respond to the, the results and consequences of their behavior, their behavior. And I think on some sense, and you were referring to this earlier, uh, maybe perhaps because of the the comforts of modernity coinciding with, you know, the big government, massive state welfare era, we've been somewhat cut off from the consequences of our action. And so we, we feel one, an, an unearned comfort and security. And then also we, we lack the proper corrective feedback uh, when we take action to orient ourselves properly. And there's, there's two issues with that. One, I think, you know, we were talking about this idea of being integrated. And that's actually, I would say that you could carry that over to the socio-political arena as well. Like, why do we have the laws, you know, the, the foundational laws that we have? Well, because over the course of many years of human civilization and the hard-fought lessons that we've learned by you know, you know, winding that clock forward and all the mistakes that were made, it's, and there's obviously massive religious influence in, in the de determination of these, but we've come to appreciate that certain virtues or principles as bedrock, you know, inviolable ideas of politics and culture are the, are the, the best way to mitigate 
the obvious and infinite and never-ending pitfalls of trying to work together to move forward. And of course, we really should be in this day and age determining what move forward is, what pro how do we define progress in our area? Because that doesn't seem to be a conversation that's ever had. And I'd love to get your take on that. But the point on this one is just that we, so those principles become instantiated and they, you know, you could have the political paradigm or the political system devolve and then come up against those principles and say, no further, you don't, you don't get to trample here, turn back around and figure it out. And that would be good. And that's the purpose of them, because those are the things that if you remove them, if they're, they're the stilts that if you remove from under the house, the house goes away. And it seems like today, and Canada is the poster child for this right now, where if you remove, we seem to be guided so much more by narrative than by principle. And by that, I mean, like, you, if you just tell somebody, whether you're the prime minister telling the population, whether you're at a dinner party and you're listening to friends speak, you could say like, oh, what do you think about these, you know, people in Ottawa, for example? It's like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of sympathetic, but it, it's got to be done now. So let's just get, you know, you got to you got to get rid of them. Or like there's no reference to the foundational principles. The reference is to a a transient amorphous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 a, and a never and a forever changing sense of what is good and right and, and true and all that kind of stuff, rather than reference to foundational principles. And when that happens, in my opinion, as we, you were saying earlier about how you can kind of see the future in this, you know, in, the, in the, 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 these tragic stories, when that happens, it's fairly easy to predict how things are going to unfold, because the story has been played out many times before. And so the, the idea of the integrated self as a part of an integrated culture or system is that those same principles that help to orient and animate the individual most properly are the very things that are instantiated in the culture so that they're allowed to do it on, in an unobstructed fashion, right? But when, when those get taken away, the, the individual and the culture deteriorates. And I think it's, un, it's yeah. inarguable it's, that that's what's happening right now. It's so interesting what you're suggesting, this idea that we're, we're driven by story or narrative and not by principles. And I think that one reason why we, we should maybe think that's true is because in Canada, at least, we aren't referencing any of our fundamental principles, whether you know we're talking about um, our, our documents like the Constitution and the Charter, or or uh, you know the area that I work in in ethics or medical ethics. I mean, we don't we have um, you know we have a Nuremberg Code, we have a UN Declaration of Human Rights, we have um, research ethics documents in Canada. You know, we have all of these different code. These are all principle based documents. Right. And, they don't even matter if public opinion is. They don't matter. Them, right? But the thing about the narrative that I think allows it to succeed <clears throat> is it, it works as long as it's internally consistent, right? I mean, in fiction, in fictitious novels or movies, um, we don't care if it's not true, as long as the untruths fit together within the story, right? And so I think this um, narrative, this, this, particular COVID narrative, according to which, you know, we're, we're all constantly at um, serious lethal threat from dying a horrible death from this terrible disease. And there's only way out of one way out of it. That narrative um, was internally consistent up to a point. And so it was believable. And it didn't matter, probably for a variety of the reasons we've, we've been talking about, but it didn't matter that in some sense, it wasn't connected to 
basic immunological principles or core ethical ideas or foundational political documents in our, in our countries. You know, it didn't matter because it had that internal consistency. But I think one of the things that's causing so much contention or sort of a boiling to the surface in Canada right now is that its consistency internally is starting to fall apart, right? Um, that, you know, our prime minister goes into the house every day and gives speeches about how the protests in Canada and Alberta and, um, uh, you know, and, and in Windsor are um, fueled by uh, Nazi ultra right wing, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then we have very clear, powerful arguments on the other side that say, well, there aren't, there are no Nazis. And then most recently, and I forget the name of the MP who did this, but yesterday or the day before, he said there was an investigation into the sources of funding for the truckers and there's, there are no allegations that, that they're receiving inappropriate sorts of funds. So, but it doesn't matter because none of that data or information is consistent with the narrative that's been told. And there's still a certain cohort of people who are holding on to that internally consistent narrative but not everyone. And I think as it's becoming, you know, our prime minister goes out and supports the Black Lives Matter protest, physically goes there in the era of COVID, right? But now won't even walk down the hill to meet protesters who have been demonstrating peacefully for weeks on end. So I think things like that are starting to show that the story itself is not even holding together anymore. Mm. Um, and that, that if, my concern is that what gets us out of this will not be a comparison to truth, but a disintegration of the story. And those are different things, right? Can you, can you expand um, on that one a bit? Well, I think if we don't understand how we got ourselves into this situation in the first place, if we just think, oh, there's some inconsistency in how the mandates were implemented, so let's lift them and let's get out of it and go back to our lives as, as they were, um, we're pretty primed to do exactly this thing again in a few years. You know, there'll be another threat, whether it's a viral one or a tech threat or an economic threat or another bank crisis, whatever, you know. Um, and if we aren't more committed to critical thinking and comparing what we're seeing, um, looking for inconsistencies, comparing it to an objective sense of truth, which I know is a kind of blasphemy these days, we, we all seem collectively, we want to be relativists or something, you know, but if we aren't good at comparing that to the truth, we will just succumb in the ways that we have, I think, over the last two years. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right, which is why the majority of this conversation thus far has been like, okay, we know it's all fucked up up here, but why, what's happening underneath? And and I agree. I think it's interesting, though, you know, you, you look at Trudeau and we were saying earlier, like the knowledge that presumes itself complete, the person who perhaps never has forthrightly and directly answered a question in their life and still in times like this refuses to do so. Right. So like just the embodiment of that, you know, phrase. And then you have outside, but a few hundred meters away, um, the, the, the very principles that we've been talking about to try to combat that. What are the, the, the posters they're holding up saying? Freedom, unity, truth, freedom, peace, love. unity, love. I mean, the, you know, if you want to get a description of God, just condense all them together and maybe you're somewhere close, right? And so again, you have this, 
these foundational principles are what's playing out. They're just playing out through the individuals as they always do. And again, why there's somewhat of a biblical sort of drama playing out here, because you have certain people that have done what we've been discussing in recognizing the importance and validity and the, you know, the, the, the degree to which it's important that these principles aren't violated, recognizing that now that they have been everything can be lost. And the, that's why th these are the very principles that they're trying to put in front of everybody's faces, that all those videos that are coming out, that all those signs, all that kind of stuff. And, and they're doing it beautifully. I mean, I, I got to give also so much props to these uh, protesters because we all know, I'm sure you as, as lovely and calm as you seem and me and everyone else have experienced a high degree of frustration throughout the last two years. And that frustration is dangerous, right? There's, there's a there's an aggression attached to that. And much as we try to, to integrate it properly, it, it's like it's there because we're human. And most of the time, these, these protests, that frustration bubbles up to the surface and it gets expressed and it, it degenerates the whole situation and it discredits those very principles that are the, the principles that might be able to rectify things. And that this such a large group of people have been able to maintain their discipline despite the incessant attempts by the media and the political class to, to you know, uh, deride them and, and, and criminalize them for holding opinions that they don't hold and for taking actions that they aren't taking, despite all that, they are adhering to the principles of peace and truth and love and unity. And it's the very power of their insistence upon those principles and not wavering in them that is giving this a that has made this become a genuine phenomenon. I don't know what happens from here. Is the tyrant going to crush it hard or are the good guys going to win? But something new and novel has emerged as a result of this protest that I think will, will create, will reverberate far beyond uh, Ottawa and Parliament Hill for a long time and, and will, will carry a power right, right? for a long time. I think there's a sense in which it almost doesn't matter at this point how it turns out. If the police go in and arrest all of them and, and uh, you know, and the Emergencies Act uh, possibly would allow uh, the government to conscript um, tow truck companies to remove the trucks, right? They've been, been reluctant to do that so far. Mm -hmm. But um, if this goes that way, uh, in some sense, they will have won already because they showed us they showed Canadians who've been feeling like maybe hope wasn't possible anymore maybe we didn't have this kind of patriotism or commitment to freedom anymore they're showing the world you know that we are not going to collapse and turn and run at the first sign of pushback they've been very clear from the beginning what their purpose is they said this is you know a number of them are vaccinated a number of them are not it's not about that they've been very clear that you lift the mandates and we will leave the moment you do it we will leave and as long as you don't we are going to remain here in numbers and protest peacefully and non-destructively and um and everything i've seen has has that has been true you know um as you were speaking, and here's going to be a moment of humility, which is always a hard, you know, a hard sort of uh, pill to swallow, I think, but, you know, academics and intellectuals and elites in society, whoever we consider those to be, like to think that there's, we have a monopoly on virtue, you know, that we're better at it than anybody mm -hmm. else. Um, but we've failed miserably. 
and and have have really led the charge in our in our destruction, you know, and even sort of intellectuals who have been challenging um, the mandates and the, the the corrosion of our society over the last couple of years, you know, we've been trying to um, fight these things with words and reason and articles and discussions. Um, and we failed in some respect, I think, because we aren't dealing with a rational leader. We're dealing with a bully and you, you can't reason. And I don't, I don't, it, this is not just about our individual prime minister. I mean, this is, there's, there's a systemic yeah. um, authoritarian problem here, right? Um, but you can't reason with that kind of bullying. Um, also, I don't think we could have seen the same level of moral commitment or resoluteness from the elites or the intellectuals or the, or the professionals. These truckers, and I use that term loosely because they're not just truck. I mean, the people who have gone to Ottawa to support them who are from all, they're all, all walks of life and all faiths. And, um, you know, they have said, our message is simple. We're going to do this. We're not afraid. You're not going to push us. You're not going to bully us. And we're going to maintain our composure. And my goodness, they've done it a lot longer than I would have thought they could have, mm -hmm. you know, and they don't need advice from, from the intellectuals. They, they, they're tactically much smarter um, than the rest of us. They're morally more committed. I mean, I just think it's, it's amazing. And there's a lesson in that. You know, there's a lesson in, in realizing that um, years spent in school uh, might give you more information about the world or an information of a certain kind. It might give you certain kinds of skills, but morality is not necessarily like those skills don't track morality or vice versa, right? There's, there've been interesting articles written about, you know, whether ethics professors are more, um, more good, like more moral than, than other people. And they always come up empty, right? It shows they're not, there's kind of an interesting counter example to that possibly, which is Peter Singer, who's the famous utilitarian. And he's, you know, very well known for giving away large sums of money. Um, so if we measure, you know, morality, according to, fiscal uh, generosity then then maybe but generally speaking you know ethicists are not any more morally good than anyone else and if anything they're probably just more skilled at sort of understanding the nooks and crannies and how to work around some of these things you know yeah well and any opportunity to quote morpheus but you know there's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path and you can intellectually uh pay homage or, or praise the validity of these things and and signal that you're aligned with them at dinner parties and, you know, in papers and stuff like that. But when push comes to shove and push will always come to shove who, you know, are, is that really who you are? Like we were saying earlier, do you really use those principles or are, are they really what foundationally orients you? And, and as you say, I think that this is a lesson in humility for a lot of people to say that that, mm -hmm quote unquote class of people, and I know, I know they're diverse, but a certain group of people will see them as a, a you know, working class, let's say. And, um, you know, as you just said, like perhaps they're less sophisticated in a variety of ways, but that doesn't mean that they can't understand the importance, the foundational importance of freedom and peace and free will and, and these sorts of things. And who to thunk it? I mean, in hindsight, it seems obvious, right? Like, well, in a, in, a, in a population that's not armed, that can't provide that kind of resistance to a tyrannical government, well, the next best thing is gigantic vehicles that can, you know, cause a lot of infrastructure and, and flow problems. And then, of course, the loud horns that are attached to those vehicles that can just 
ring out incessantly, you know, the, the displeasure uh, and disagreement with what's going on. I mean, it's, it's yeah. brilliant. And as we've seen, this is kind of uh, caught on all around the world that people are, are seeing this strategy and saying, oh, th this, this can work, you know? Um, and I, you know, I want to come back to something we were saying about, because when I first, we're all, I, I guess a lot of us are probably cynical. So when I, when this first popped off and like, oh, the truckers are going to go and protest, like so many protests, the first impulse is they'll go for a while, they'll raise their, their signs and then they'll leave and nothing's going to change. Mm -hmm. But the first time I heard one of them actually speak about it, you know, they were saying something like, we're not going until this is over. I'm willing to stay as long as it takes. I'm willing to be arrested. I was like, oh, this, this is serious, you know? You know? The first, I agree with you. The first, I mean, I heard, I was there the first few days and I heard some of them say that as well and spoke to some of them, but also when I started seeing that they had brought porta potties and barbecues and fire pits, I thought, yeah, they might have, they might have the long-term <laughs> and snow but, shovels and wood. And <laughs> Right. And it's been so brilliant to watch them. You know, they're, they're cleaning the streets, they're protecting monuments, they're singing, they're dancing, they're, they're feeding the homeless. I mean, it's just, it's poetic how, how extreme the contrast of what it is, the truth of what it is, and what it's being characterized as by the political and the mainstream media class. I mean, it's, this will be studied many years after this is over. And as is always the case throughout history, the psych 101, the philosophy 101, the, the, the social sciences 101 class that's reading are going to be like, how the hell did people except that this was the case of things just as we do when we're looking at 1930s Germany or whenever the hell else it's going to be the exact same process and you know it would be great if we could learn a thing or two from history but we seem very it seems like a very difficult thing uh to do that but the the one thing I wanted to mention about that willingness that adherence to those fundamental principles and the willingness to see them through all the way I mean this too is a circumstance that has uh, occurred many times throughout history. And it's always why the king doesn't want the dissenters or the protesters. He wants to get rid of them as soon as possible because the power of the martyr, you know, the person who is willing to commit and adhere to certain principles all the way through. Now, in certain cases, maybe you give up your life or maybe it's quote unquote, just your livelihood and your freedom, which is a pretty big thing to give up. Right. And these truckers are many of them seem willing to do that, but the power that that communicates, that dedication and that commitment to to fundamental principles, as we were saying, like this is going to carry on and reverberate far beyond Ottawa, no, no matter what happens here. And it's because of that. It's because like when when that type of that that's a tremendous power, and when it gets put on display to that degree, uh, it can it can take down empires. And again, so that's you know why I bring up the fact that kings and tyrants throughout the ages have never wanted the displays of martyrdom to be public because they have so much power to affect and how people infectious. think and how they act. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the problem is it's when you stand steady and you don't back down, they might remove you. They might arrest you. They might heaven forbid, kill you. But if you haven't voluntarily backed down, then you break the chain of control. Right. And I think that's what we're seeing. We're just saying, uh, to these bullies that, you know, you, you can take our livelihood, you can take our lives, but you can't control our minds and our decisions anymore. This is enough. Yeah. And when I, other people see that it's possible, what's that? You give me goosebumps just by saying that, you know, there's, 
It yeah. makes me think of all those, you know, movies that we've all watched, you know, you can take my life, but you'll never take my freedom. And, you know, there's another good one uh, just to, uh, have you seen the movie V for, for, for V for Vendetta? Oh yes. Ages it, it, ago. It, it's such mm -hmm. a uh, prescient movie for our times. Cause there's so many spooky, um, you know, things happening analogs that are so related yeah, analogs. Yeah. Exactly. But one of them is when, when the protagonist V captures uh the young girl who uh, you know has helped him out to some degree, and anyways, he makes it seem as though uh, the state has captured her and has put her through torture and prison and all this stuff. And anyway, she reads this little note by a, a prior prisoner who has long since died, and he finally comes in and says, "This is your last chance to like capitulate, to give up the goods, tell us where where V is, all this kind of stuff." And she just you know she's transformed herself throughout that process to someone who accepts her fate because she knows she's adhering to the, the, the right principles. And so she says, she says, mm -hmm. kill me because I'm not willing to, I'm not willing to cooperate with you. And then he says, he's ostensibly a prison guard. He says, well, there's no fear in you. There's no fear in you anymore. And you're totally free, you know? And I feel like when I see the truckers who are so committed to this cause, and now over the last day or two, we're seeing them get arrested on the streets and they're still resolute in what they're doing. They're, accepting it and as they're being taken away they're preaching peace and unity and freedom and it's such a powerful thing and it it so disarms the intimidation as a tactic that the state so often uses to try to break the will of people who are counter to what it wants you know the uh the objectives that it may have and in some sense thank goodness we were pushed to that point because you know if we had um if these mandates and had lifted a couple of months ago and we maybe had a transition in our federal government or in some of our provincial governments that have been more pr problematic um, and all of this just kind of went away quietly, we would have lost the opportunity, I think, to see what Canadians are really made of and to see what's really on the line. And, and this, is, this is invaluable. I mean, I don't think we're going to know what what costs some of the truckers and support, supporters of them will have to endure in the coming days in order to be able to make that point. Um, and, and I certainly hope that society will rally around them in gratitude for what they're doing and support them in ways they need to be supported, you know, and that everybody who has lost their livelihoods because of this and who has been ostracized and in any other way uh, hurt uh, as you can be in life. Um, I hope all of those people regain what they've lost and then some, but they may not, you know? And um, I think it, it's, it's showing us that all these problems of, of the 21st century we've been talking about, you know, the burdens of luxury and being disengaged from our decisions and being overburdened by technology and thinking that experts are going to solve all of our problems, you know, all of these things are true, but even with all of that stacked against us, there are still some of us who are willing and able to make the ultimate sacrifice to resist it. And thank goodness we were pushed to that point because we wouldn't have seen it otherwise. You know, um, 
you, I don't know, I watch footage, footage of the, the convoy moving across the country. And as they're moving people, I mean, I'm just getting goosebumps on my arms I saying know. this now, but just, you know, watching people, you know, screaming and supporting them and waving flags from the overpasses. And it just gathers momentum increasingly. And, you know, I also noticed the, the atmosphere in Ottawa uh, has, has shifted and become more jubilant and more peaceful even than, than when I was there, I think, you know, I'm not really talking about the the police presence but you know i mean people are having snowball fights and um and cleaning snow and dancing and singing and where i mean it's just very um i think people were singing we are the world the other day you know i mean it's just I like i mean thank goodness we got to the point where people were pushed where they felt that it's too far and now we have to do something because if we weren't we would have lost the opportunity to see that to see the humanity in people Thank goodness. You know? I, I agree. And, you know, and I think they're, they're the strategy they've had the whole time. And I think it's, it's been a conscious one, but it really is just to hold up a mirror. Like what does doing that do in terms of the contrast that it creates with the, let's say, you know, the, the enemy or the two, the two uh, factions here, what does the truckers acting in that way do in terms of revealing what the, the government is doing? And, and, I think little, you know, there's still a lot of people that are quote unquote asleep to what's going on and don't appreciate many of the things that we've said in this discussion thus far, but many do. And many are seeing just how absurd and disingenuous the leader is and seeing how uh, easy, easily and frivolously foundational documents and principles can be done away with in the service of what power, control, narrative, what have you. And so I, I think that's really good, but you made a point a little while back. It's like, well, what then, you know, and let's say maybe, you know, maybe mandates get lifted and the politicians don't uh, credit the truckers, but they just say, well, you know, things were going in that time. direction anyway. It was time. My and, concern uh, is what they're going to do is say we're lifting the mandates because our public health measures were so successful. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, they're going to say that. I mean, we can't be we can't expect anything other than that, you know, despite two years of abject failure and no data whatsoever that any of them uh, have been effective. You know, of course, they're going to take credit for it. But um, what happens then? And I, I think that is the big conversation that. Well, this is part of that conversation. And, you know, my interest in Bitcoin as an alternative monetary system is obviously a big part of that, because I think the monetary system is pretty much the foundation of a society and an economy and the degrees to which that permits corruption and uh, the overgrowth of certain institutions and the allocation of capital, you know, in ways that are not, you know, in unfair ways, for lack of a better term, all contribute massively to many of these problems that we've been uh, exploring. But those are the real um, conversations that are going to have to happen after this. And I mean, you referenced it a few minutes ago, but here now we have, if, if you were whoever, a normal person in society, and you thought, you know what, the last two years, the government has taken my job, taken my livelihood, I wasn't able to see, you know, my parents in the hospital, you know, impacted my child's generation, not only because of their development, because of all the debt and all the, all this damage, I'm going to throw 20 bucks to the truckers because they're going just to say, you know what, we haven't been heard and, you know, we want to be heard now. And so I think that's fine. You might be on a terrorist uh, watch list and have your assets frozen as a result of that action now. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I can't think of a, a more powerful wake up call to people that what do you really own? You know, your money is, is, 
like let's say the condensed your money is your most condensed optionality in the world. It's what allows you to move through the world and it expands your options if you have more and it limits them if you have less. What does it mean that someone can so easily confiscate it or cut you off from that? Because it basically is tantamount to cutting you off from your ability to exist in many ways. We talked about canceling right at the beginning of that. You cancel somebody's access to capital, to their, their savings. You're canceling a large part of their life. You know, and uh, I'm hoping that that is a wake up call to just how susceptible what's supposed to be the foundational mechanism for expressing value and coordinating, you know, economic activity in society and culture generally, if it's so susceptible to the dictates of, you know, the power apparatus, I don't think to your point, like, I think we continue to be in this recursive loop of these things happening over and over again until that's resolved. And so this move as extreme as it is, and as much as we might decry it as being an abuse of power, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. it's probably, as has been the case with so many of these things, beneficial in the long run because it's showing just how susceptible, just how easy it is to uh, circumvent what we thought were inviolable aspects of our, our society and lives. Yeah, it's so interesting because, um, I mean, one of the lessons that in some sense, we have been taught for millennia uh, has to do with the harms of putting too much stock in things that are beyond your control. You know, I mean, the ancients told us that Aristotle, for example, is very well known for saying that you should not rest your happiness in external goods. You know, and I, I mean, I think you make a good point, which is that it's just a fact of the modern era that, that we can't function without money without access to the financial systems that that allow our lives to function. I mean, that is certainly true. But I hope part of the lesson in this is that um, whether or not we're talking about a government structure or experts beyond us that we think will give us all the answers, or we're talking about all these material goods that we've accumulated and our ability to travel and our ability to function within the banking system, all of these things are be outside of ourselves. You know, they're all, um, and because they're outside of ourselves, we don't have complete control over them. We never have. It was a false sense of security if we thought we did. You know, I mean, there are things about the world now that are taking our financial matters more outside of our control than they should. I mean, I'm not certain not justifying the government and, you know, seizing people's bank accounts, far from it. But we have to realize that our, um, if those things do happen, we don't need to lose our character because of it. Mm. Our morality doesn't crumble because of it. The things that really matter aren't lost, right? And, and we, we may be getting a wake-up call to have a, a sort of an, a reassessment or a reordering of what it is in our lives that really matter. What is it we're really committed to holding on to? And what can we sort of lighten the load a little bit? You know? Yeah, I mean... I agree that the most important things in life are internally derived and internally generated, let's say. Um, I don't think, well, ever is a long time, but you know, I think money gets a bad rap and it probably has gotten a bad rap because of the type of money that it is, because it's so susceptible to manipulation and corruption. And then we see the manifestations of that corruption and say, oh, we poo-poo capitalism, we poo-poo money, all of these things. Mm-hmm. When we people just made bear- bad choices. Yeah, and people very seldom recognize the source of the problems. They're they're looking at the symptoms, as is so often the case. And, um, you know, 
what's interesting about Bitcoin, and I, I don't want to turn this into a, a conversation about Bitcoin, but it does establish the most inviolable property re relation humans have ever had access to. So for example, you could, you could hold your entire life savings as 12 words in your head, and nobody has ability to cut you off from that. And that's a extremely novel thing. And it's part of the reason why there's so much enthusiasm about it, because when you have, because money is just a reflection or an emblem of your sacrifice time and energy, right? You give your time and energy to something. And in return, you get just a symbol, an emblem of it that you can use to, uh, to access the things that you believe are valuable. And so that it's, it's, it's not just like a frivolous tool. It's very much wound up in, in who we are. It's a very much an extension of ourselves. And that's why it's so dangerous when it's so easily corrupted because you corrupt the extension of yourself and it's you you leave yourself more open to having your own self corrupted. But if that extension of yourself is not corruptible and it's not um, confiscatable, well, then you have a, a far more to our discussion earlier, a far more integrated version of yourself because it's, in, it's more impervious to those outside influences, which are forever beyond your control. But for certain things, you, you, there's a benefit to being able to selectively determine the degree to which you're vulnerable or susceptible to changes in the outside world. So I think that's part of the reason why there's so much enthusiasm. And as a side note, one of the, you know, probably the aspect of this whole phenomenon that I spend the most time on is the observation that I've made and that, you know, is, is pretty much inarguable at this point. Why is it that when people begin to truly understand what Bitcoin is and the rabbit hole runs quite deep, but when you, when you understand that, why is personal transformation such a persistent part of that process where people turn their lives around from perhaps being nihilistic for perhaps not taking care of their health, perhaps not stimulating themselves intellectually, perhaps having poor relationships in their lives, perhaps not being hopeful about the future, all the problems that we've been identifying as kind of prevailing in society and culture today. Why is it those all seem to do a very rapid 180 once someone begins to understand what this thing is all about? And so when we talk about solutions to these problems, again, you know, why I, I spend so much of my time in Bitcoin land is because I see that as probably the greatest force multiplier for the type of change that we would probably both agree we'd like to see happen in the world. Um, and that's a very, it's a very new and a very uh, not broadly understood or recognized phenomenon, but being very close to it as I am, I, I, I'm, I've not really ever seen anything as powerful, you know, to, to, mm. to find an analog, you have to kind of be in the spiritual or, or religious domain. And so I'll leave it there for now. We can, we can, we can dig into that some other time, but I do want to get your take on something I brought up earlier, which was the idea of progress. You know, I, I think part of the reason why the whole, the hashtag science trust the science thing is so such a, a throwaway dismissive response to any sort of objections today is because in a lot of people's minds, I think there's this chronology of history that is basically an, an unending, you know, bottom left to upper right arrow of progress. And, you know, in our modern society today, we're so much smarter than those silly religious people of the past. We're so much smarter than those primitive people of the past. We're so much more able to discern truth and science is, is how we construct the world. And as a result, we're so dismissive of potentially the insights, wisdom, and lessons that an analysis of the people that came before us might convey to us. And mm -hmm. so, as you said before, there's this extreme arrogance and hubris that characterizes the modern era. And 
perhaps absent a a supreme authority that a a religion or or spirituality may have instantiated prior now the supreme authority seems to be a faith in the infallibility of something like science and or the state you know because they're, they're intimately wound up together and um as you know so my question is how do you define progress and do you think where do you think we are on the trajectory of of, of progress let's say what's your impression of of our state of progress today this is really interesting and I think tricky, um, in part because I think the word progress has really become a synonym for, you know, you mentioned science. We, we say scientific progress as though science modifies the concept of progress, which would suggest that there are different kinds of ways in which a person can progress or society can progress. But I think we've really come to assimilate those two ideas such that what it is to, you know, we kind of have this collective belief that's fueled by, by the media and by our, our governments that um, what it is to be scientific is to be progressive. And then that has political and moral connotations to it, right? So progress is not just uh, this stepped idea of movement towards something, whether that's a goal or, or just an endpoint, but it's um, there, there's this uh, virtuous dimension to it, right? To be progressive is to be, to set yourself apart from those who are not, from those who are what, stagnant and regressive or something, right? right. And the interesting thing about progress is it, it, it requires change, right? You can't, you can't progress in a static state. There needs to be a difference between what's going on at T1 and T2 in order for you to be able, so there has to be change or, or a difference, you know? And, but it's not clear that, I mean, not all changes are good. We have arguably regressed in some dimensions of our, our lives in, in human history. We've fallen into world wars. We have decided to own other people in virtue of their color. You know, we, we've clearly regressed morally, but also economically, we have economic crises. Um, and then whatever it is that leads to world wars, you know, I mean, we clearly are capable of regression. So the mere fact that there's a change of state from one moment in time to the next does not mean we're progressing, right? Mm -hmm. And it's also not clear to me that if we did remain in one state for a while, that would be bad because we have had some incredible developments in the past. I mean, if you look at, you can't help but read a lot about Martin Luther King lately, trying to understand how the protests now are similar to or different from um, the, you know, the, the racial rights movements in the 60s and the 50s in the States. And um, you know, you might argue that that was a really punctuated moral moment in history when someone like Martin Luther King is, is speaking out for humans to have, who just happen to be of a different color uh, in order to have equal rights. So if we stayed in that moment a little while longer, would that have been so bad? You know, but I think we really, we have to be so careful. It seems like a lot of the conversations I have come back to this point, we have to be careful what we synonymize, right, with one another. We have to be careful about um, using science to stand in 
as a placeholder for something like perfection, right? Or that progress is essentially good or perfect or the best that humans are capable of. You know, it's possible too. And there's a difference between science and scientists, science and scientific movements. I mean, you can have uh, better and worse science, can't you? Mm -hmm. You can have more and less progress. I mean, can't rates of change move at different paces? such that we can talk about having different rates of progress throughout history. So, I mean, I, as you can probably tell, I haven't thought about this particular issue enough to kind of vet it in all of its different nooks and crannies, but I think it's really complex. Yeah. Well, you, you know, you were, you were talking about your students before and the, the apparent apathy in the recent decade or so. And of course, you can look at uh, metrics like depression, you can look at substance abuse and drugs and alcohol, and uh, all of those would point to an apparent crisis of some kind. Is it a meaning? Is it an existential crisis? Is it a cultural crisis? What have you? Um, and, you know, I, I reflect back, and this, this is overly simplistic, but I often like, I'm, I'm, I really like the ancient to, to look at ancient history and the cultures that have flourished then, and the Minoan one just seems particularly idyllic to me, you know, like they didn't seem to have a lot of warfare. They had a lot of great Mediterranean food, the, the art and the, the style <laughs> and, and everything. We should have stopped just... at that moment in history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. I mean, and for what, you know, a thousand years plus, they just lived on a beautiful Mediterranean island and looked good, you know, dressed well. It just, it looked like a great time. And, uh, you know, but maybe they had 20 years left, less lifespan. Now I, I don't, those get thrown off because of the birth rate, you know? Um, so, and, and like, you know, uh, child uh, deaths at childbirth and so on. So I, I don't actually have the figures on that. But again, part of the, the progress narrative is generally like, well, we live longer now and well, we have more access to clean water and we have Netflix and iPhones. And so isn't everything way We're better? We're clearly now? better off. Right. Clearly. And, so, and so I think back to like, you know, my contemporary in that time and see like a, a young, healthy male with an appreciation for, you know, the spiritual domains of existence and logic and reason and the natural world and the social component of life. And I think like, seems like that would have been really great and, and far more grounded and integrated to go back to what we were saying again, um, into the, the truth of the world and the truth of the interactions between one another. Again, I don't want to ascribe too much to them because, you know, the same sorts of pathological ways of thinking and social hysterias and stuff probably uh, occurred in that time as well, maybe with less frequency or less intensity, who knows. But then I look to today and I, let's say we live a little bit longer. Let's say our, our life is more comfortable. Is that, is that even a good thing? Is it a good thing that we can get by in life without being, you know, for lack, you know, this won't apply to everyone, but without being physically strong or, or physically capable or something like that? I mean, is that strictly a good thing because we've dialed down the demands on us as, as people? I mean, a lot of people would suggest that's, that's obviously a bad thing and that to dial up the responsibility and dial up the ways in which you have to adapt to the world is actually what leads to a more meaningful life. And so, um, you know, this is why I keep coming back to, and I by no means have a I don't, this is not solidly determined in my mind, but I, I'm the reason why I ask you is because I'm still trying to determine how I should be looking at progress and what are the things that I should be identifying as markers of progress. And I think a, a fairly obvious one is these virtues that we've been referencing throughout this conversation, the degree to which 
Those are recognized and orient one's individual life and are, are integral and foundational to the social life. The degree to which that's the case, or those, those are integrated, I think is probably part of the answer there. And if, if they're not, regardless of the modernity or technological advancement, there's probably very little genuine progress taking place. But to the extent that they are, perhaps there is. So that's, that's probably part of the so answer. Probably part of the answer for sure. And so many people I talk to uh, sort of use the language of inevitability in life. I feel like if you ask somebody, you know, are you happy with the amount of screen time that you have during the day? Are you happy, you know, going and lining up to get the next iPhone? Are you happy having three cars in your driveway? You know, I mean, are you happy with all of these ways that life is, you know, are you happy with accepting all of these ways that life is being modified in technology in the way that we've discussed? And I find that usually the answer is something like, well, no, not really, or not necessarily, but that's just how it is, or that's what everybody does, or if the option is there, why not do it? And there's a certain kind of um, acquiescing to the, I don't know if it's the lowest common denominator, but it is the, maybe the option or the set of options that is, most presented to you or most obviously in your face or something like that, right? And, and if you are just acquiescing to, to those things, um, as opposed to making a conscious decision to invite them into your life because you believe that will give your life more purpose, acquiescing is just a kind of, you know, again, letting someone or something else determine what's going to happen in your life or determine the meaning that, that, that your life should have. And I think when we lose that connection, if we are not the authors of our own lives, if we're not writing our own stories, even if somebody else could have written that story better, even if we falter sometimes and write a really bad chapter, you know, but then we get a better one at the end. Um, there's an authentic, you know, I mean, authenticity has been used so much that it almost feels vacuous now, but, um, but it's, it's been used a lot, I think, because it, it, it's meaningful, right? We want to have meaning and connection to the things we do and the ways that we live. And I think a lot of us are, are losing that and we're losing even the ability to transcend and step outside of these lives that we just kind of go through the motions um, for every day, you know? And people who say things like a very simple act of just turning off their phone for the day or the weekend, they never say, oh, that was a bad idea. <laughs> they might say it was hard, but they never say, no, I'm better with it. Or I like my character better when I, <laughs> you know, so usually it seems that giving these things a more proper place in our lives and having, being more intentional about how we make use of the products of progress and technology, if those are one and the same thing, is, is usually better for us. And, you know, on the topic of progress, when I was listening to you talk, I'm thinking that I think the, um, I think grass comes from the Latin for walk. So it's this idea of like walking towards or, or advancing towards something. And, and there is something beautiful in that, that it, as humans, we're all kind of we're on this walk together, right? And we're, and, and we, it doesn't mean that there is a, it doesn't mean that all the signposts are clearly marked along that walk, along that mm -hmm. pathway. 
or that we've been given a map by anyone to figure out where it is we're going or how to get there most efficiently, or that there's buried treasure somewhere along that way, right? Okay, now the now the metaphor is becoming very elaborate. <laughs> you know, um, but there is something beautiful, I think, about our shared humanity that we're trying to figure things out together. And what strikes me about I think what this COVID situation has punctuated for me is how intolerant we are of messiness and error and mistake. And, you know, we, we need, we feel the need to make everything perfect or it's useless and wrong. You know, we have to gloss over every little uncertainty, every question mark, every um, misstep. We, 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 we fact check everything. We, we fact check every perceived error out of existence. And we're obsessed with that. You know, what, have, have we ever done that historically? We've scapegoated people, I guess. Yeah. Is that, you know, maybe this is our version of scapegoating. Perhaps, but yeah. there's nothing that seems to make people feel more like they've accomplished something in the day when they accuse someone of being a misinformer or they've been able to fact check them. And, you know, we, um, let, let's let someone make a mistake. Let, I mean, you, you know, we've seen this with the, the whole Joe Rogan Spotify thing. Mm. And, and with that, I just want to say, well, let's assume for the sake of argument that Joe Rogan says the most absurd, unfounded things that, that you could imagine a person saying. Mm. Why do we need to cancel that out of existence? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's I straight, does, but, you know, no, of course it's straight out of, you know, Again, like personal development 101, let's say, like, don't hide things in the fog, right? If there's elements of you or if there's elements of the external world that you find distasteful, displeasing, fearful of, whatever, bring them to the light. Don't banish them to the darkness because they're, you don't know what they're up to there. They, they fester and they, they become more insidious and they, they act in ways that you're not aware of. Bring them to the light, the light of discourse, the light of reason, the light of whatever, the light of truth, ideally. Yeah. And let's have it out there. And hopefully as a result of doing that, we become more impervious to its negative influences and we actually do progress in a genuine way, right? To, uh, to bring Someone it all said to me the other, yesterday, I think it was, they used this metaphor and I hadn't heard of it before. I don't know if it's a regional thing or not, but they said, well, you got to cut the grass and then the, you see the snakes in the grass, right? So there is this something to this idea that you, um, yeah, and, and things like that fester. And um but I think that requires vulnerability and vulnerability. Yeah. There isn't room for and courage, right? You need to be courageous to, to be mm -hmm. vulnerable and to open to say, I don't know. And there's such a, you know, if, if there's a lack of courage, then um, I, I think you could say there's a, an abundance of cowardice. And when I see the leaders of today, and when I see people that are in positions of, the, of authority imposing their way of thinking and their truths on other people, you know, I try not to attribute malice, because I think most people uh, do so accidentally or, or they're not aware of what they're doing sort of thing. But most often I see an abundance of both incompetence and cowardice. And those two things together, you know, many people would say they might as well be malice, because if you're willing to impose those two things or the products of those two things on other people, that's mm -hmm. kind of the banality of evil once again. And, um, you know, I see that everywhere. And so to be open, to say, I don't know, to say I'm walking forward somewhat blindly and I'm going to fall into different pits, but I'm going to dust myself off and keep on going. And I'm going to, I'm going to maintain a commitment to the, the ideals and the principles and the virtues that are most important. That requires a courage. And that's why in all of these foundational myths and stories that propagate throughout 
history and are foundational to Hollywood, even in the, in the modern day, mm -hmm. that's what the hero does. That's, you know, they, the hero is all, you know, very often some little weakling that's not ready, not up to the task of the challenge put before them. And they somehow muster the courage to rise to the occasion and meet the challenge and are transformed in the process. And that's the, that's and so the, are we right. That's the eons old story. That's the, that's what humanity is. That's what we are as people. I mean, that is our situation. And we, if we don't recognize that and engage it consciously, we fall prey to all the pitfalls uh, that exist around that. And that, again, I think that's why that story is, has so much salience to us because it's so fundamental to how we're supposed to act and engage the world. Mm -hmm. And if we really are, we were talking about tragedies and whether we're writing our own tragedy earlier, if we are our own sort of tragic heroes, um, I mean, tragedies are compelling for a reason. I think largely the reason you've mentioned that they're, that they're journeys that we learn something about ourselves, that we bring a certain truth to light that was hidden, you know, hidden in the shadows or hidden in our, um, you know, hidden in our psyche and, and carrying that around the burden of that is it, you know, it's like, it's like carrying an, an infection that you can't get rid of, but when you can purge your soul of that kind of thing, just like when you, you know, recover from a, a virus or an infection of some kind, you know, you, you, you feel better in the soul, not just, you know, not just in the body. And so I think the hope for us is that we, um, you know, we learn from the mistakes that we're making and we bring truth into the light somehow you know it's interesting um i keep going on about the origin of words but uh when the emergencies act was declared on monday and i was thinking about the nature of an emergency and whether what we have is really an emergency but um emergency comes from the latin word for bringing into the light you know and really? so there is this sense in which our we, we've kind of i think reached an acme of this tension between control and this desire for freedom. And, and what the true emergency might be is that there's going to be an emergence of things that have been hidden for a while uh, coming into the light. And I think time will tell uh, whether or not that happens and what those things are that get revealed. But um, I don't think we should think that just because we might have erred in some way, just because we might be tragic in some way, that there's no good that can come from that. In some sense, we're just affirming our humanity because we're, you know, we are these imperfect beings that make mistakes. What separates us from the animals is that we're able to reflect on our mistakes and hopefully at least try to, to do better in the future. Yeah, I think that's a very productive and hopeful way of, of looking at this, because I don't think we're going back to anything, the, the mentality of the past or the way of the past. I mean, as far as I can tell, we are kind of in a historical moment. Now, whether that plays out over five, 10 or 15 years, like it seems like a lot of different things are converging at once. And we've only scratched the surface of what they are here today. But I think adopting the mentality that something has changed and how should we interpret what's happened and how, how best can we approach that change and not hang on to a hope or nostalgia for whatever came before, certainly borrow and, and derive insights from the past, but not try to lat, like latch onto it and bring it back, but keep, you know, moving forward with, as, you know, as we've been saying, uh, but with a change perception, a change idea of what's most valuable and what's, best to help orient us because 
I think mm -hmm. as crazy as what's happening right now is, we are probably going to be experiencing for one reason, one reason or another, quite a tumultuous time for the next, I don't know, five, 10 years, whatever it may be. And, yeah. you know, adopting that mentality is probably going to be fairly helpful. I think there will be a lot of sorting out to be done. And if we are, you know, if we're really in an identity crisis, not just as individuals, but as a country, we need a, we need a resolution to that. And there needs to be a lot of, I think, individual and collective introspection about how we got here uh, and about how we revise or remake ourselves moving forward. You know? Yeah. Or as a global society, because I don't think any of this is terribly unique to Canada. We, we may be the furthest along or there may be, you know, we may be well, the first to experience certain things, but I think, I think what a we lot might, of this one of the things global. we might be grappling with, one of the things that led to this identity crisis is just globalism itself. The fact that we've never really had to um, have an awareness of all people in the world before, you know, we've, right. we've never, and maybe, maybe in some sense, this is happening because um, that's been overwhelming for us. And we haven't really known not only how to deal with this um, sort of profusion of information and data, but also this awareness of, of the stories of so many other people all over the world. I mean, you, you there is something kind of magical about getting to uh, Zoom and Skype with someone. And I mean, I was on a radio show in Australia a week ago or something. There's something kind of amazing about that, but it's also a bit mind blowing. And uh, it might be a little too much for our uh, limited minds to comprehend. And maybe we either need to pull back a little bit or to figure out how to deal with it better than we have. Well, I think, like you said, oftentimes people will kind of throw up their hands in the air about the influence of technology. And maybe that's not always warranted, but I don't think there's any going back from a global perspective, let's say that that's been developed as a result of globalization. Um, and it, you know, as you said, I think it's, it, I think you're right in that this is largely responsible because our worldviews, our cultures, our religious traditions, all that kind of stuff is like how we see the world. And globalization has disrupted all of them to say, it's not just yours over here or theirs over there. Now you have to contend with the totality of it. And so how much does that disorient people and traditions and cultures to, to try to reframe or integrate that broadened perspective of, of the way things are? And so I agree that this is what we're now figuring out. And this is potentially the reason why we have a type of meaning crisis. And this is why we're, we're refiguring out religion and spirituality and what its role is supposed to be in politics and, and all of that stuff. So, you know, I agree that for that reason, it's probably going to be a time of great change. Um, Julie, I know you've got a bunch of other calls. I want to give you a chance to catch your breath before you get to them. So my last question is just, um, what do you do now? You know, you, you took a stand and I commend you for that. And you were reprimanded for that. Do you think your life will go back to normal if it seems like these mandates and restrictions are going to be lifted at some point? Would you even want that? Or are you on a different trajectory now? And if so, what would that be? Yeah, very much so. You know, one thing I often, I've been thinking about a lot lately is that when, I think what, what happened to me is the great fear that's keeping a lot of people from speaking out. They say, I wouldn't want to be, you know, raked over the coals in the media. I wouldn't want to be so ostracized or so hated. And um, and, and one thing I would want to say to people is that it, it is awful in certain respects, but it's also incredibly freeing. <laughs> Try it out. <laughs> know that, right? When you know that the worst things have already been thought and said about you, and there's kind of nowhere else to go, nowhere else to fall in a way, you feel like, well, now I can really say anything I want because 
because I mean, the people that were really, really hateful uh, initially have petered out a little bit because I think I think they figure, well, she's just saying the same things. What am I going to do? Launch exactly the same insult over the wall again and again through Twitter? You know, yeah, I guess they could, but maybe they've moved on to other things. But you know, um, no, I don't. I don't think I will ever go back to teaching at, at university. Um, you know, I, I said earlier that um, this mandate situation also made me realize about the degree to which universities have are just plagued by censorship and this culture of, of silence. And I, I wouldn't want to be in that anymore. And teaching over the last few years has just been very empty with students who are I'm not sure why they're there. They're they're wasting their lives in many respects and spending and really uh, you know spending a fortune to do so when when they're not terribly keen on learning. I mean that's painting things with a pretty broad brush, but um, you know I think I think what's interesting for me and important for me right now is uh, trying to bring some of some of what's good about academia into the public sphere so that we don't feel like these conversations, we've talked about what, like history and morality and knowledge, epistemology, finances, we've talked about all of these things today. And I want people to know that those are not conversations that are the distinct um, rights of the intellectuals or elite in society. These are the conversations that we can and probably should be having with our children and, and over the dinner table and, and at coffee with friends. And we shouldn't feel badly about that and feel instead we should feel badly if we're not having those conversations because we're probably not doing our jobs. So yeah, life will be forever changed, no doubt. No one will ever Google my name again without having this come up, I'm sure, unless I do something more controversial. <laughs> but you know, I mean, um, life is different, but different isn't always bad. That. Right. Well, look, I commend you for having taken that stand and being public about it. I thank you for the time today. Um, I, I'm, I'm happy that you found a different angle or a greater degree of freedom in life. And I look forward to seeing how that manifests as you move forward. So I'm sure we'll stay in touch, but uh, until then, take care of yourself. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Take care. Okay.